0: Okay, today I'm at uh, Thorn Farm in Devon with uh, Nigel Hawke, Nigel, successful trainer, buyer and breeder of young stock, and famously former grand national winning jockey. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us today. Um, so with the we'll talk about the Grand National first of all you're synonymous with it. having won it on Seagram in 1991 and having bought dual winner of the race Tiger Row for 10 grand and then selling them again so it, it's a grand national Sort of weekend, still a big weekend for you?
1: Yes, I must probably end up going to Chepstow, but so be it, if you don't know I mean. It's, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's been there, done it, got the T-shirt. It's, it's always there in the background.
0: Yeah, how many times did you ride in the National? Twice. And did you win it on the second time or the first no, time?
1: No, first time. Shut my eyes the second time, but first time, yeah, I won it first time. So
0: what, what happened the second time?
1: Uh, rode Seagren the following season, but, you know, we'll come into that later on. But basically, by that stage, he shouldn't have been there.
0: Okay, now you um you rode some big wins and other big race wins on Sea Graham. How did you originally get the ride?
1: Um <laughs> uh, amazing that Roddy talked to me last week and he still rides out for me. Um he keeps reminding me he rode him in the Hennessy. Is that Roddy Green? Roddy Green. Um one season and I think I dropped him off after that. And obviously we just we just gelled. He wasn't Biggest horse in the world, and he most probably, I would never say I was the greatest jockey, but he, he suited my style of riding, and we, we just clicked straight away. I think we won the big four-mile chase at Cheltenham on New Year's Day, and uh, end up winning the, well I caught the Ritz, what, the big three-mile handicap Cheltenham Festival with the race that used to be just after the Gold Cup and gone from there, but you know, we won the race and post-chase, we won a lot of good races.
0: You went into the race as quite a fancied horse. Um, you know, did, did you sort of allay yourself to even dream you might win it?
1: Well, it's, it's, just, it's a lovely story. remember at the time, I was still claim at the time, um, the previous season I had been beaten in the Ritz by Big Son and Richard Dunwoody. Basically, he outrode me, I think, and we only just got caught in the line. Um, so following that, the pressure was on, that season, ninety-one season, to win the race, um, because obviously we were always going to head towards the national, and to secure the ride, I needed to win at Cheltenham to secure a ride. Luckily, I did, and that was the pressure of the pressure was off after that. I mean, as we know, national with the national, it can stop in one fence. Um, so it was we we're there to do our best and enjoy ourselves and win. Great, and luckily we did.
0: Now you, obviously you won it, but how much do you actually remember about the race? <laughs>
1: it was a long time ago. Um, yeah, I, I obviously the fences have changed nowadays, but the, the most important thing to remember, and it's very true, you go hunting for the first circuit and race for the second circuit. Um, I went up with, spent a lot of time with Jimmy Frost, who won it a couple of years before that. on um, I think Lissopovia. Uh, Jimmy was a great help. Because uh, obviously, it was my first ride in the national, but the basics of the race is very straightforward, as I say it is get in travelling, get in jumping, and then get into the race. And for once, it worked a, t- a treat.
0: Did you ever come near to falling?
1: Um, no, but there's a couple of times I think I was calling the cab or something like that, but I know it was upside grain court at one's fence. I can't remember if it was fence, and he was taking the mickey a bit because I definitely the hand came off the reins a bit. But no, to be fair to the horse, um, he took to it straight away. He was a pleasure to ride, and as I said, he was lucky. Me and him, we we definitely gelled together, and um, we looked after each other.
0: Now you say it was a pleasure to ride, but for anybody watching it, I know you're all professional jockeys, but for anybody watching it, it looks terrifying. I mean, is it? <laughs> is it do jockeys get genuinely frightened in the race? I
1: think they do. They shouldn't be doing it. I mean, remember we we're young and foolish by then, and always saying this game that it's the day you start thinking about it too much. You shouldn't be doing it. It was just. It's everybody's, it's every boyhood's dream to have a ride in the National. I remember I was a kiddie, as a youngster, I used to watch the National on TV at home and then go out on oh, a pony going round the farm, jumping all the hedges and like that, pretend I was in the National,
0: but SF one stream. And during the race, um, how many times did you ever think you'd won it until you'd actually got in front?
1: No, I... Generally, the race went great. As I said, we jumped around nicely the first circuit. We then quietly get into the race. Um, coming around the last bend, we are actually travelling very, very well all the way. Uh, outside anti-dot, I think, something like that. And remember the horse that came second, Garrison and Varner won the Gold Cup three weeks before that, which doesn't happen nowadays. Um, Mark kicked a long way from home. And I thought the race was gone. We were in our motions just to hold our position. Great we win, but certainly second place. I jumped the last, thinking great we'll be second. And because it looked like the winner had kicked and the race was over. But the first time I actually realised the race was going to be won was at the elbow. Uh, I could see that Mark was in trouble and we've actually, we keep galloping. and. Uh, yeah, the race was won at that stage, which was a great feeling because I knew by that stage we had won the race.
0: Just interesting what watching. I've watched the, uh, it's a bit like Crispin Red Rum, that that, that finish. Um, obviously, the jot, the horses are absolutely knackered. I mean, how knackered are the jockeys at that point?
1: Adrenaline is an amazing thing. Most probably, yeah, you are tired, but you win with sh- shout. That's the last thing you think about. Um, I think, obviously, you know, we said the other day, I think jockeys are far more fitter now than they used to be, but. I promise you, you've got a half a chance of winning a race like that. You, you don't, you go through the motions. You get not get too tired.
0: And obviously, it was as as it was fantastic for you, it must have been absolutely devastating for Mark Pittman. How, how was, you know, <laughs> did did you sort of approach him after the race? Did you leave him B? I mean, how was he? Well,
1: 30-odd years. He unspoke to me since, but no, that's not quite true. Um, that's That, unfortunately, is racing. I mean, obviously, it was hard for Mark because exactly the same thing happened to his father, but that's life that's racing
0: okay so how I mean how did it change your life did did your career sort of trans transform after you won it
1: yeah it's most probably didn't do any harm but how much good it did at times I mean, remember back then the whole structure of racing was different you know you didn't be summer racing but we lot of racing in August September around the likes of Newton Abbott Devon Exeter still in places like that and more than once i phoned up to ride a bad horse in a novice hurdle or something like that and this is before agents i said well i talk at the or you won the national you won't give it that ride which i i could see where they're coming from if you know what i mean but you still want to had to make a business you had to make a career out of it on the other side for obviously for winning the national um it opened an awful lot of doors and other ways as i said i spent the next two summers in new zealand which was a fantastic experience for anybody um, I rode in Russia, I won in Russia as well, which obviously from the National done it. I went to Singapore, I, you know, I, I basically saw the world through winning the National. Uh, the way I was treated in New Zealand was unbelievable because obviously it was a New Zealand horse. So I think the trouble is when you're that young, you don't appreciate things that you should do. And looking back at now, I, I was a very lucky person at the time. But I was lucky because I took the chances and I
0: appreciate it. So, were people contacting you as the Grand National winning jockey, or did you say, I'm the Grand National winning jockey, can I do this? And they were.
1: No, I think, to be fair, the New Zealand job came about because obviously David Barron's at the time was doing a lot of work in New Zealand, importing horses and things like that. So the the chances came along, but I went straight over them. For day one, I rode in the New Zealand Grand National, and it it was just a fantastic learning curve. It was a fantastic experience. And as I said, all right, I'd done it, but I was very lucky to be given the chances
0: I did. Yeah, we'll talk about that a bit later on. Uh, when was the incident interesting? When was the last time you actually watched the, the, the finish <laughs> of that? Have you, have you seen it so many times you're sick of it? Um, no, not for a year or two.
1: You know, it was a... Um, don't get any better I tell you is quite unique style at times but <laughs> yeah.
0: you're quite lucky because most people that get to watch it poor Richard Pittman and um, Dick Francis when he was alive it's all for the wrong reasons wouldn't it yeah <laughs> at least you won it
1: and it was actually was saying earlier on I listened to some, on TV a couple of days about Dick Pittman when he got beat on Crisp and I think that most probably was the best ever national ever when Red one just got on the line and how he was talking about the race and everything was very true. He felt he lost the race half up, the... exactly the same as Mark at the elbow there because he hit the horse. If he used hands and heels, he most probably would have won the race. And I think that comes back to the scenario about Sticks nowadays. He ultimately admitted if he
0: kept hands and heels, he would have won the race. And I think he was right. Right, so we'll go on to that a bit later on as well. So we're still going to keep on with the Grand National. Right, so your second claim to fame, or third, second and third really, is uh, Tiger Row. Now, you people may or may not know... That you bought tiger Roll for 10 grand yes originally yeah, yeah. so uh, tell us a bit about how that came about and uh, what attracted him to you. where first of all where did you buy him from
1: bought him from doncaster end of august early september at the time we would just moved to form farm here we're trying to make a business so we were in the business of buying selling horses all the time i could see a little bit of a market uh, of those good dolphin type horses very well bred he wasn't very big, but they were usually backward type of horses. Um, he was bred to win a derby, but he certainly wasn't going to win the derby. I liked the horse. As I said, I got him at that price because he wasn't very big. And basically the plan was to, most probably the time, to run in a bumper and sell him for a profit. Um, but from day one we scored him, he was absolutely electric. So the bumper route went out, and obviously we went uh, juvenile hurdling. I thought at the time, I found the worst race possible at market racing, but actually talking to Tim Easterby two years afterwards, the horse we beat was a very, very good horse, so the form was there to be seen, and um, by early December, I took him to Cheltenham and made a nice profit on him, um, but that was always a plan, people always say to me, oh don't you wish you would have kept him, it's a silly question really, because I know he's going to win two Grand Nationals and five at the festival, of course I wish I kept him, but Didn't know that at the time, and I think even that we were always going to sell him. We we made a nice profit on the day. He wasn't the biggest in the world. I did sell him to Gordon Elliott, saying I think he'll win at the festival, but I meant the Fred Winter, not that I didn't think he was quite good enough to win the Triumph. I thought he was good enough to win the Fred Winter, and got that a little bit wrong. But I said at the time he's a good horse, and he was a good horse.
0: No, notice in your office. No, it's not there now. I'm looking around. You had some nice correspondence from Connections after, after it's won the Grand National. Yeah,
1: it's, it's lovely, actually. I mean, Michael Leary, he is what he is, and he gets a lot of stick, but he, he sent me a handwritten letter, which w- was a lovely thought, to be fair. And, um, yeah, it's, you see the other side of people, and it was very nice, very nice.
0: Uh, so, this is quite an obvious question, we know that the Grand National has changed a lot, been made a lot safer for the horses well, it's intended to make it a lot safer for the horses. How much has it changed from your day?
1: Greatly, greatly. I know old men also say they're bigger and stronger in this and that in my time, but the, the National to me has moved too much. Um, it's a glorified handicap in my eyes nowadays. Back then it was totally different, instead the greatest feat in the National was to jump round. I've always got that little bit of a fear because they've put the fences, done what they've done to the fences. They've brought speed into it. And the only thing causes real problems in our game is speed, um, which obviously they have done. Uh, it doesn't always quite make sense because the year before, I think Marcus Armitage won it on Mr. Frisk and there was a course record. So that doesn't always quite add together. But I, I think that they certainly don't want to change any more to the point they've got now because it's otherwise it's going to lose everything.
0: And is it as it stands at the moment? Is it still a unique challenge to horse and rider? It always will be. Um, I suppose we've got that problem. In
1: the last couple of years, this the, the Irish is it just losing it? its attraction a little bit in this country because more than half the runners are Irish horses at the present moment. We haven't got the personalities of horses in this country competing in it. I was saying that Lucinda Russell's
0: horse, I think, is favourite this year, but. To me, it's just lost its little bit of a glamorous gloss. And finally, when you watch it on Saturday, if you, even if you're watching it from uh, from Chepster, would you be envious of those jockeys that are going out to ride in it?
1: No, I was never the bravest anyway, but uh, no, it's as said, it's Christ, it was a long time ago and a lot of things have changed since then.
0: Okay, Nigel, in part one, we talked about the, the glory days, winning the Grand National um, and buying the Grand National winner. But what's your background originally? I mean, are you from a horsey family?
1: Yeah, very much. Um, grandfather trained, always had a lot of horses. We always say the day that he died, he had over 70 horses around the farm at the time. No one was any blooming good, but that he just, he loved them. He loved his horses. He loved the breeding. He loved the whole scenario, I think. I mean, obviously my father carried on from there. He was a successful amateur jockey. So it's, it's basically always in the blood. Um... Got to 16 as a kiddie, I used to go up to Sir Mark Prescott in the summer, which is a great for any young lad, was absolutely priceless. And when I turned 16, I should have stayed at school, but I wasn't bright enough to most probably. But uh, father put me in the car and took me out to Josh Giffords, and that's where I started my career at Josh Giffords.
0: And you were but you're raised in Cornwall, I raised in Cornwall, yes, so yeah, it's a fair track to go anywhere to do
1: <laughs> racing, <laughs> yeah. well, it was because yeah, um, obviously. Good going on for that when I was a young lad. Um, I loved my horses. I loved my ponies. Um, did an awful lot of pony racing at a very early stage. Tintagel on a Tuesday night and Boss Castle on a Friday night, right through the summer. Used to do a lot of midnight steeple chasing, which was quite an experience as well. But I... not, Yeah, what's midnight steeple chasing? <laughs> It's frightening. Health and safety would be frightening them nowadays. Uh, for the summer months, obviously, especially down in Cornwall with the tourists and everything like that. We used to race around the fields and jump hurdles and bales and things like that in the dark. And I was saying earlier on that um, it was a great night one day. I was coming to the last, and all these hurdles, obstacles, were lit by tractor lights. But I think the diesel ran out on this tractor coming to the last hurdle, so the lights went out. And uh, you can imagine the carnage after that. But it, it was it was great. It was lovely. I tried to be a member of the pony club, but they made it quite clear at early stage because back then, pony racing was frowned upon. Um, They they just didn't really want to know, which is a shame, because I used used to love anything like that, but I loved my pony racing as well, and um, I'm sure it didn't do me any harm in the long
0: term. And tell us a story about the uh, the speech that the pony club <laughs> chat made after you won the ground actually.
1: yeah i said earlier on from winning the national uh, lord Elliot and this guard it was a lovely thought actually they sort of did a nice ceremony and presentation of meet winning the national and everything like that it was super and the District Commissioner started talking, telling them all what a wonderful member I was at the East Cornwall Hunt Pony Club and this and that, but they actually seemed to forgot they actually kicked me out the Pony Club, but um, I kept very quiet and went along with it, but this uh,
0: just amazing though people change a little bit of success. So your, your actual first job paid in a racing job was up Josh Gifford?
1: Josh Gifford, I mean, as I said before, obviously I spent uh, a couple of summers with some Mark Prescott and things like that, learning the game, went to Josh Gifford's, um, I'd say after two or three years, something like that, and um, I'll bring his name into it, but, you know, I've got to be grateful to Paul Lockwood. Paul Nichols had just moved to David Barron's as, as first jockey, and these are the days we used to have Broadheath and play school and things like that, and he phoned me out. I had just started riding point to point, and he said, look, why don't you move close to the home? There's a nice opportunity here, and um, I took it up. and so that's how I ended up at David Barron's. Um, in the meantime... Summer months when I was at Josh Gifford's, I spent a lot of time from Smart Prescott's. I then went to Guy Harwood's in the Dance and Brave time. So, my CV for the first two or three years was top class Smart Prescott, Josh Gifford, and Guy Hard. I think you wouldn't get too much better in the yards than that.
0: Now, I guess I can see the way your staff are treated around here. They've you know, perfect a perfect uh, working environment, all very professional. Well, I imagine back in your day, maybe it was a bit... I interviewed a guy, Roy Hartnell, who, who was a stable boy in the 50s, and he told me some horrific stories about initiation. Was that still going on when you were...
1: <laughs> that was still going on there, but it's, it's, there's no point. You just accepted it, and as simple as that. And, uh, you know, it would come round the other way one day. I remember Eddie Buckley, he used to work for me, hey, when he was at Jim Bolger's. Um, he had the right idea as well. Boys, come and get me and just accept it and it became boring. But yeah, it was just...
0: It was, you're a young lad. It's all part of the fun. So what did they do to you? They did enough to me. <laughs> <laughs> right, so you you got your start in national hunt racing at David Barron's yard. Who, who were the contemporaries there? Paul Nichols was there? At where? At? at David Barron's.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I started at Josh's, to be fair, and, and Josh is... The main, because at the time there was the Richard Rose, the Peter Doubles, the Paul Nichols there. More, I think at the stage I started there, every lad in that yard had a licence. So it just told you something about the standard of riding in that yard. And that, to be fair, is where I learnt the game properly. Obviously, when I went to David Barron's, it was myself and just Paul, really. But
0: where I really learnt the job was at Josh Giffords and was when you started working at racing yards was it always your intention to become a jockey no
1: nope, no attention at all um most probably more to train than anything as i said i was quite light at the time i've always loved my horses um but basically it was just just to, you know leave home and just learn a bit about the game it was never great to be any champion jockey or anything like that um and it just how it all snowballed i said i was an amateur jockey um, I rode a winner point to point, but my biggest trouble point to pointing, I was so light. And to be fair to Paul again, he saw that opening. I went to David Barron's as an amateur jockey, but in about two months, I turned a conditional. And um, it went essence, it, it, it went on from there.
0: And was there anybody in particular that took you under their wing to sort of teach you the rudiments of sort of race riding?
1: Not really. I'll go back to Josh's. Um because you were surrounded by so many good lads and they were good lads. Um, you, you, you just naturally
0: learnt because there were so many good people around you. And you rode your, you rode but actually rode your first winner for Kevin Bishop.
1: Well, yeah, I was going to poor, but I think the first year, just after I turned professional, um, I was supposed to ride a horse at uh, Wincanton and Boxing called Danny's Luck for David Barron's. I had actually been in the yard christmas that morning everything's fine and unfortunately i think the horse was lame in the afternoon now to be fair to paul um i didn't know it but he knew it because he's in the yard at the time and there was a spare ride on a horse called red grey devil for kevin bishop and he got me the ride on that um from that my first ride winner was that day and i end up end of that season being two lengths up in the county hurdle at the festival and I'm sure I fell off it although it fell I think I fell off it but it just it's the old sorry I was in the right place at the right time I had the right horse and um, it just snowballed from there
0: and when you were uh, when you first started out as a jockey who, who were the big names in the wearing room and sort of how was a young lad treated when you uh, when you sort of turned up for the first time yeah
1: obviously back in my time there's Richard Rowe at Josh Giffords you had the Hill Davis it was he just left Josh Giffords uh, obviously, Peter Scudamore was champion jockey. You know there was a lot of gentlemen, gentlemen in the game there, and uh, I was very really lucky in that sense.
0: Right. So we've already heard about your uh, winning the Grand National. What are the other other highlights of your riding career? Sort of. In-
1: yeah, I mean, obviously, um, I mean, obviously, my, my main horse was Sieg when we won some big races. Um, but you know, we said earlier on for obviously winning the national. Um, it was a great honour at the time to go to Russia and ride a winner in Russia and things like that. So,
0: yeah, yeah we won, you know, we've won a lot of good races. And so it's, it's actually it was in uh, Kiev, Ukraine, which is part of Russia, the Soviet Union at the time. I mean, yeah. Tell us a bit about that.
1: Well, funny, I didn't know that until, obviously, the war broke out last year and I saw a picture of the race course and I well, hang on a I've got the same picture here. So... It was so silly because obviously, when I rode there, it was still part of communist Russia, so I did, we didn't actually know where we were to, to be honest. Um, but it's saying we were very young at the time, and I don't think we quite appreciate how lucky we were to be over there and it was a wonderful experience. And sort of, race we won was like a Russian part of Beachy, something like that, in middle August, rock hard ground, but uh, oh, fantastic week. You know, I think, you know, that funny enough, that summer after I won the national. I rode winners in New Zealand, in Russia. I've been racing in Cyprus. I've been racing in Singapore. I have really done the tour, if you know what I mean, for one summer. And I ended up at Newton Abbott on August the 1st.
0: We'll, we'll talk about Newton Abbott in a bit. Right. The, um, now, I did read, this Well, this all been all good so far, but you, you received a four-day ban for using your whip about 20 times on a horse called Colonel O'Kelly when winning at Wolverhampton. Um... Was it the difference between winning and losing or the rush of blood to the head that made you quite so whip-happy on that one?
1: I never got rush of blood. No, it was. At the time, things were... You know, we had gone a long time without winning at David Barron's. Horses were sick. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Um, He was a lazy old tyke. Lovely old horse. um, Owned by Russell and Jill Peake. But he just needed urging all the time. And yes, I didn't do that. I don't think we won the race. It wasn't right. And this day, they all been banned for six years, but I won the race. Um, you know, we can talk about the stick later on, but it, sh- it shouldn't have happened, and I should have been
0: banned for six months. Right, well, we'll be talking about the stick now, if you like. So what is your opinion on the whip rule these days? So uh, the, the pro-cush rule, as we call it. Well, it's not like the whip was in your day. Yeah, and
1: I funny, I keep going back to Richard Pittman. What he's listened to the other day, he openly admits he would have won on crisp in the Grand National if he didn't let the horse halfway up the running at the well because he unbalanced it, and I have said this for a long time, Um, I'm not, it's open dispute, and a lot of people are going to dispute, and I know Roddy does a little bit, but for the image of racing within the world we are now, do we need to hit a horse behind the saddle, I've got a doubt, and I think that Wick's got to be carried, you carry in the forehand position to correct the horse, but to hit a horse behind the saddle I'm not sure about because I think the image will look better and surely at the end of the day then the strongest jockeys and the most genuine horses win the races so I'll be shot down on it but that's how my views are on the stick at the moment and this is a man that hit twenty horse 20 times in the race but yes I think we it's the world we are now we've got to put racing over as a good as the sport it is and that means reducing that use of the stick behind the saddle, I don't
0: think it's a bad thing at all. OK, now, your riding career came to a crashing end on the 26th of October 1993 at Newt Abbott when uh, me Up Scotty fell at the first. Um, I was probably there, actually, but uh, can, you, can you tell us about it? <laughs> I can't
1: remember a lot. All I can actually remember,
0: I was rode out for Nick and Jane Williams that
1: morning. I can even remember to this day where I parked my car in a car park but after that, I can't remember for anything. About six months, I shouldn't think. Um, basically, what happened is, great jumper. The horse jumped... The f- first beam-me-up Scotty jumped the hearse very well. And, unfortunately, there was a horse a couple lengths in front of us, went about five strides, and fell. Now, the trouble by that stage were in full gallop. Didn't see it coming, and he went straight over and, unfortunately, the first thing that hit the ground was the head. Um, so, basically if i remember right i had bruising on the outside but the inside of the brain uh, it was very much the same sort of type of injury that declan murphy had that season but declan could be operated on they could never operate on where my injury was um and it's well now i didn't drive a car for 5 years because there is it was it was just going to take time and it did take time
0: and you were in a coma for a week yeah so is is there i mean is there any lasting sort of legacy of that well, when
1: somebody says I owe them five, fiver, I say I've got no memory. And that's about the only, to be fair, the memory has always been a problem. But, you know, I, I look back and been very sensible about it. Um, I was in a head injury ward and I've always said to this day, I think I was the only person who walked out of the ward alive. So it, it tells you how lucky I was. Um, so, yeah, I can't complain too much.
0: And have you ever sat on a horse since? Oh, too many times. <laughs> so how long, how long do you think um, you'd have carried on, carried on riding had you not suffered that accident?
1: Well, to be fair, even things were starting to move then because obviously I had actually fallen out with David Barron's Overseacrum. Um, I was with my family of farmers down in Cornwall. I had actually moved back to Cornwall and had a little yard in Cornwall. Um, and it was lovely actually, our sort of first horse we broke in and trained it one first time out, so we were certainly on the right wicket. And so I, I think it would only have been a question of time before I took our training seriously.
0: Okay, Nigel. No, so we've talked about your jockey career and we're going to talk about your training current career now. But I'm just interested you said you fell out with David Barons. I mean you had such success with him. What you know, what happened there? If you don't yeah, mind
1: asking. It's, no, it's it happens all the time in racing, but obviously everybody's on the high after he won the national. I rode Seagun must have been three weeks after that in the Whitbread, which I think they call it the ever what it is nowadays, the last race you know that and if I remember right, we jumped the last. It must have been two lengths off or something like that. We jumped the last in the Whitbread, nearly upside or in front. And it it's, takes a lot to explain, but half way the run, I think it was Dockland's Express, the horse that came past us, I felt the horse just take a big sigh, if that makes sense. And I think that was the day he broke his heart. It really did. He'd been a great servant to then. I rode him first time out the following season at Cheltenham. And I said straight, I said, this horse is gone. He never gave me any feel at all, Didn't want to be there. And eventually they took me off the horse and put another jockey on it. And the horse never finished the race again. So it, it was always a little bit sad because basically he wasn't, you know, I thought the world horse I bound to. And they, they the base of their reaction was I was being too soft on him, which was very hard to take. I wasn't being soft, but I just, I knew that horse better than anybody else. And the horse is... He broke his heart in the whip bread and he was never the same horse again. And as I said, you've only got to see this record after that. The horse actually got moved to Josh Gifford all places in the end, but I don't think he ever completed the race.
0: All right, now, you mentioned quite early on in this interview that even before, you didn't really want to be a jockey, you always wanted to be a trainer. Mm. So how did somebody learn to be a trainer? I, I'm Looking on your bookshelf, I can't see any how to be a trainer books up there.
1: <laughs> no. Um, no, I think... How do you? You just learn, and I think, funny enough, even when I was riding, I used to love riding out of different yards because I was just quite passionate about how things people do it different and one thing another. And then just going on to a quick story there, going back to New Zealand. There, the gentleman I rode for on New Zealand was Kenny Brown. Well, Kenny Brown basically ran jump racing in New Zealand. He was Martin Pipe of the time of New Zealand jump racing, and always said he taught Mark Top to ride. Well, they say Mark Top was the best horseman in the world, and Kenny Brown taught him to ride. So, it tells you what he—he he was brilliant, brilliant horseman. And definitely, when I was in New Zealand, they were the fittest, healthiest horses I've ever sat on. And all right, I know a lot of them are trained from the field and they had fresh air, which was a great asset. But the fitness level of these horses was huge, absolutely huge. Now, it's when I started training, I wanted to nearly do a Kenny Brown. There's certain things he did, which I thought were brilliant, but I most probably wasn't quite brave enough to do it because no one else was doing it in this country at the time. And as you always do when you start off, you start with a lot of moderate horses, and then people, well, you can't train, they're not fit than that. The horses just weren't good enough. And it's only in the last few years, funny having Eddie with me has been a great man to my confidence, because obviously we used to spend a lot of time talking about Martin Pipe and his methods and one thing or another. And he's interestingly made a, 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 a statement about Gordon Elliott. Now, I know Gordon Elliott was at Martin Pipe's, but he never trained like Martin Pipe. And what Gordon Elliott is doing in Ireland is identical to what Kenny Brown was doing in New Zealand. And funny enough, I've seen it at McHairs in France as well, with a certain type of how they train horses. And that's what we've done in the last few years, is, is transfer that and put it here. It's only, I've been brave enough to do it because I know somewhere who's done it this part of the world, and it definitely works, and it definitely works here. We've got a system,
0: our horses are fit and well and it definitely, definitely works. And there's no point in me asking you what that is because uh, you don't want everybody to know, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Which is fair enough. I mean, when, when did you take out your licence first and where did you train oh, first? Oh, too long course? ago. <laughs>
1: um, I, To be honest, I don't know. I mean, basically, after my injury, I was in Cornwall. So I said I couldn't do anything for two or three years because I couldn't drive. Even when I started training, I don't think I could drive a car. And... Um, unfortunately the farmer was on my uncle's farm he died and a friend of mine his wife decided wanted to sell the farm so I was in a little bit of a predicament either I'd go back to the father's farm or that was the plan um funny and looking through in the western morning news one day there was uh an advert about a yard and chard in Somerset uh owned by Peter Blackburn or Robert Blackburn now and um I advertised it when I saw the place, and uh, that's why I started there. But it's the same. So I was in the right place at the right time. Um, got very friendly. with him, funny enough, Robert's daughter married Dan Skelton. I got very friendly with Paul Nichols. So it's it's amazing what a small old world the racing world is,
0: if you don't know I mean. But that's where I started at Robert Plattman's yard. And now you're at, uh, here at Thorn Farm in Devon. Mm-hmm. Um, was it an existing racing yard when you moved in? Here? No,
1: certainly not. Certainly not. Um, it had been a tenant farm for over 200 years, um, hadn't been touched properly for a long time. Um, lucky position, with the barn is now, was basically a sh- uh, lambing shed at some stage. We flattened everything, although there was an awful lot to have. We had no electricity here for five years. Um, our own private supply of water, so you can imagine what the place was like. and priority was the barn we put the barn up put the gallop up and then we did a bit to the house afterwards so it's it's work in progress all the time but it, it lucky position of being here it's your own property we can do what we want when we want and we're not being dictated by anyone and how many horses uh do you have here and how many can you take we would got two barns uh we can take around about 60 but we've always got between 60 70 80 horses around the time because as you know we'll come on to it later on but obviously Tiger Row, but we've got the ground, we've got the space here. We're in the business of producing young horses all the time. I wish, you know, we haven't got huge checkbooks,
0: so the only way we can produce nice horses is do it ourselves. Okay, so I'm going to go on to that. Um, how big a part of your business is the buying and selling of horses?
1: Well, obviously everybody knows the Tiger Row, and don't get me wrong, it'd been lovely to cater, but as a business, we have to sell because it's, it's we've got to keep the money ticking over all time um nowadays i'm trying the better horses i can either be a racehorse trainer or a bloodstock agent um at the moment i like to be a racehorse trainer so if i got a good horse i'll do my utmost to find owners to keep them in the yard
0: okay so do you do you buy or breed more I'm doing both now
1: and um, to be honest um we had a great connection with Jim Bodger we've done very well his type of horses in ireland i still go to france we got six seven broodmares here so we we're doing a little bit everything to be fair
0: and what percentage would be to order and on or, or how many you bought on spec to sell on <sighs>
1: obviously the ones we breed on spec um so we got you know we've got nice foes, yearlings two roads coming up through all the time those so that's work in progress um You can't buy too much on spec because it's finances. You can't be holding And To be honest, the type of horse we're buying are usually the big backward type of horse, which are the ones we can afford.
0: But it's work in progress. It's two
1: years down the road before you do much with them.
0: And this is what you call young stock. Young stock, yes. Um, and you're also keen on syndicates you got your own racing syndicates yeah, very keen
1: on that i think that's the
0: way that racing is going to go
1: um, i think the day i was talking earlier about it the day or so ownership is getting more and more expensive all the time i think syndicates are a great idea they've done very well in australia and played other parts of the world and i think we've got to get on bandwagon and do the same thing
0: okay now you've you, you get a lot of winners for you know that come out from the yard one thing i have noticed they appear to be well supported when they win would you describe yourself as a gambling yard no (laughs) no i love to be clever and say we were we we haven't we my job as
1: a trainer to get them fit and well and do as well as i can and find the right races um you know these great tips as all what's going to happen i said well you know the form as well as i do you tell me but that's my job is to get them fit as well as possible i generally think it snowballs a little bit it's a lot of these type of things, a little bit of money, a good price, this, this you know, and then people get onto it and they, this, it's a snowball all the time. But, you know, quite often we have having a run, a lot of these horses are halved in price.
0: Okay. So, and also, I mean, the, the yards you took, you do the, you've got the young stock, you train the horses, you also produce your own feed, you've got sheep. Is that all, a, is that all just to keep, you know, just to diversify? Well, it's all part of the business.
1: I mean, I, especially in this time, of, this this day and age, <laughs> you ain't going to make a fortune training racehorses so you need other businesses to keep things going now what i don't want to do especially training races you do a job you do it properly or not at all so if i got a skin flint because we can't afford to do it i don't want to do it so obviously but all our other businesses it keeps the race courses going
0: Uh, a lot of i imagine a lot of yards have got a bit of a farming business going on but not many have got their own wedding venue and uh airbnbs with jacuzzis (laughs) not to make this an advert but you do don't you (laughs) yes more so the wife than me but um yeah she's she's
1: quite incredible and things like that our our father is well known as a real innovator and many
0: great things and she's in her blood as well and she's she's always up to new ideas okay right so back to the racing um a lot of we've seen what it's like at Cheltenham these days you talked about the Grand National already. lot of the amount of Irish uh, horses So a lot of good horses owned by good UK owners that are being sent to Ireland for the detriment of UK trainers. obviously because if they're training them you aren't mm. so why do you think that is?
1: I don't know uh, well I do and I don't I'm probably one of my best horses I've just lost going to Ireland which I'm not happy about but why do they do it? Um, they say prize money I just I've got an inkling people like to be seen. You know, obviously at the present moment, Willie Mullins and Gordon Elliott are the the people having a lot of winners, and I like to be associated with them. Gavin Cromwell as well. Um, it, it it is a bit of a worry, but just that it's that race and it swings and roundabouts. You know, it's it's frightening to see Cheltenham this year the number of Irish horses there. What we can do the job as good as well as them. In fact. I find it quite hard to believe because racing in Ireland is so competitive. It doesn't make sense to me. You're right? Don't get me wrong; the prize money is better, but they're just very good, competitive races, um, and no one can say they're doing the job better than us. I, I wish I knew I could wave a magic wand and tell you the answer to that, but I just, I just, it's fashions, and unfortunately, people are quite—they <laughs> like to be seen with the right people.
0: But is there anything they do in Ireland that maybe British racing could adopt, which is a good good idea? Yeah, I think there's lots of little things like schooling races. I think
1: obviously, because we were in that stage of producing young horses, I like the schooling races. I think at the early stage, the that I think they're more helpful in Ireland to a trainer than they certainly are in this country. Um, what is a schooling race? Because half the races appear to be schooling races. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> no, they do. I'm, I know what Eddie was telling me before with Kieran, he, he rides a lot of these schooling races and they have six or seven races a day, non-racing days, and um, just teaching the horses a job, which is a, a brilliant thing. It's good money for the race course. It's, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's good for everybody, but unfortunately in this country they just haven't latched onto to these sort of things
0: and is that behind closed doors or do you get touts looking through the bushes and <laughs> no
1: i don't think it's all pretty i don't know because i've never been to one but it's only listening to other people but i just feel they could be more helpful in this country to these type of things to help us you know i mean we used to i do like young horses take them away for a day we used to go camping when well, they shut the doors a little bit there now um all jockey club courses they're stopping them use uh, after racing give them the gallop although i know one or two trainers still do it and um, we do go to lambourne but i i'm a great believer to give young horses a day out before they actually hit the racetrack first time out
0: all right they've come to the end of this nigel um not many people have ridden and trained a grand national winner i don't think there's anybody alive actually so is that something that you've got on your bucket list would you would that be a dream of yours to train one? You bought it, one, you get the treble off if you train well, one. Well,
1: of course it would be. Um, I think my biggest goal in racing is to keep on enjoying it. Enjoyment is the most important thing. Make it pay and have success. Um, but you've got to be realistic. There's, there's, you've got to be realistic again. As long as you keep it at a certain level... Make sure you enjoy the game. That's the most important thing. Of course, I would love to win a national. I'd love to win lots of things, but we have got to be realistic about it. And do, all we can do is what we're doing at the moment and do the best we
0: can. And finally, British racing, especially jump racing, is a future bright? <laughs> ah,
1: it's a future bright. It's going the right direction. It's got a long way to go, but it's going the right direction.
0: Brilliant. You're Nigel Hawke, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, Nigel, as, as an extra here, this is the Grand National, so there'll be people watching this, maybe even jockeys that have, are about to ride in it for the first time, like you did when you won it. Um, what would you, let's talk our way around it a bit, talk about the major fences. So, what would your advice be?
1: I think what, saying this, it was a long time ago I won it, I think what we could put in perspective how greatly the national has changed i've always said tiger row is a classic sample 30 years ago tiger row wouldn't have jumped the first he would have refused um obviously that just tells you horse that race more because wins twice over it um he wouldn't have done it 30 years ago so that's how greatly these fences have changed um i said earlier on i don't think they want to change him much more obviously riding the race Probably most, the most important fence is most probably the first fence. Back in our time, you see an awful lot of fallers at the first fence because they're, they're racing too much of it, and they take them on. It's something a little bit different. They have a look at it. They back away. They, they panic a bit. You, you see, oh, that's Nearly always the hardest fence, I think, on the course is the first fence. You get over that. You try to get them into rhythm. Rhythm, rhythm, rhythm is the most important thing. Um, Saying. So, Dick Pittman's telling the other day about Fred Winter was a man to go down the rail and I, I wouldn't totally disagree with that because obviously it doesn't matter how well you jump in the National there's always going to be something that's going to fall in front of you that'll bring you down if you go down the rail you've got less chance of being brought down so I can see that back in our time there's there was risks as that especially at Beaches Brook where the brook was biggest down the rail but you've looked at the old films how everybody came across the course to jump Beaches middle to the outside, if you know what I mean, where the brook wasn't so big. Obviously, nowadays that's gone because they've they've modified it so much. Um where else have we got? We've got beaches, canal turn. Canal turn, pretty obvious. You can see what everyone's doing is the obvious thing to do. Cut it as sharp as you can. I saw boys the other day doing that. You do cut it as sharp as you can, uh, come out a little bit and come cut across it. Um the chair certainly isn't the fence that it used to be, still got to be jumped. But it's not the fence it used to be um and going back to what i said before i'm a great believer you go hunting for the yeah and you do go hunting for the first circuit and then
0: become a jockey in the second circuit when you when you've jumped these feature fences you've got over beaches you're thinking oh you know i've got other beaches done the canal turn without going in the canal you've done the chair is is there a danger that you might become a little bit too confident that just what they call the normal fences yes yes i suppose there is i mean are you plotting a course? I mean, can you, do you have time to plot a course between each between each fence? No, it's a national. I mean, saying
1: again, I'm not talking back when I rode it, but the, 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 you just got to use a bit of common sense. Go hunting. Go hunting. And that's literally what it was for the first circuit. Is just keep yourself out of trouble, stay away from to- certain horses and just go hunting. Once you've got that first circuit and you've got into that rhythm, you then can start riding the race. But that first circuit, you've got to go hunting.
0: Okay, from memory, not many horses seem to fall at the last, which would be heartbreaking for any jockey. <laughs> I, they seem seen just be able to go through it. So, assuming you've jumped the last, okay, and you're 25 lengths clear at the, at the elbow, and what's your, what do you do?
1: Well, funny, we keep saying that but poor old Pittman's the ones who know better than anybody else than this, because both Mark and Richard won. Jumped the last, won the race, and they've both lost the race at the same spot, which is the elbow. Um, you know, so on Richard Pittman made that point. If he he did been hand and heel, he most probably would have won the race. And to be fair, the Garrison and Savannah just didn't quite get home. And the race in ten strides from winning the race, he was beat. And luckily, I won the race for that reason.
0: So if you're on one this year, and it's in front at the elbow, you feel it's, Obviously, it's knackered at this point anyway. What do you do?
1: Hands and heels, get it home. You know, because by that stage, these horses are tired. The stick ain't going to make any difference. Just get them home. You know, and if people forget, it's a long way from the last fence to the winning line.